Amen. Well, about a month ago, I got in front of our church and we had what we called a little family meeting about what was going to happen as the semester was beginning. And we called our church to spread out as much as possible over four gatherings, but really begged and pleaded with people to come to the earliest gathering. And a month in, let me just tell you, you are the remnant. You are the group that has chosen not to do it week one, but to do it a month in, the day after a loss, the day after we're like, okay, it's hard to get up. And, and it, maybe it was easier a month ago when we were like fresh and heading into a new year. But today, trust me, you are doing us a huge favor by being at this gathering. But as we go into these other ones today where we, I don't know if you saw this in the parking lot, but we put up overflow for our over, overflow. So it's like once overflow fills up, where's our second overflow? And our team did an incredible job with the parking lot. And, and every week our church has to figure out the logistics for just how to make it through a Sunday. But what I notice is happening, at least in my mindset, and I don't know if this happens to everybody, is that as we have these high-volume Sundays where we're experiencing God do so much in a given day and, and even further extended to our other locations, I go, I hope our people don't think this is just about us getting them in and out of a building where we're praising Jesus. Like, I hope our people don't just think it's hitting play on a video and going, I heard the word, I got it, and hopefully I'm going to put it to use this week. ACC has to be a space where we are doing more than having a riveting worship experience on Sundays. It has to be a church family where people are growing into Christ-likeness every day. And not just that, but where the people who attend here know how they are supposed to do that in the life of our church. And this is not something that I'm going to be able to lay out to you in a sermon or even in a sermon series. I just want to tell you and give you kind of a sort of a backstage access to what's happening in our leadership and on our staff right now, we are burdened by the fact that thousands of people call this church home, and we're even more burdened by the fact that there's a lot of them that do not have an answer for how do I become more like Jesus at Auburn Community Church all the time. Great service, hopefully great sermon, but faith family where I am challenged and inspired based on what we are doing together as a church to become more like Jesus. That's where we're going. That's where we're going a year from now. That's where we're going five years from now, God willing, multiple decades from now. And I am in it to lead more than a worship experience, but a faith family who are dedicated to become more like Jesus. Now, in saying that, I, I don't want to mitigate the fact that God does move in sermons. And he does move through the times where we worship together. Don't know if you felt it as we were singing a second ago, but I was like, there you are, Lord. It's almost like you can go all week and forget, and then boom, a moment like that on a Sunday is like, oh, I have been missing the peace and the clarity and the perspective that was available to me the entire time. God, I'm so sorry for the times I've missed out on experiencing what it means to be one with you. So it is powerful what God does in a given moment, and I do believe it will be powerful what will happen over the next three weeks. We're preaching in the Gospel of Luke, and this summer, when I really felt strongly that God was leading us to Luke, there were three sermons in particular that I was the most excited about. A sermon on Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of bleeding, which you're about to hear today. A sermon about the prodigal son, and a, that'll be next week, and a sermon about the rich young ruler. I just tell you all of this ahead of time, that these are coming back to back to back, 
And I do believe that God has something significant and special reserved for these moments the next couple of weeks. But I just want you to know, if you don't have a faith family to belong to and people to surround you and service opportunities to step into and discipleship built into the DNA of your daily life, all you will ever feel is inspired on a Sunday. And that type of living will not sustain a fruit-bearing life for the glory of God. As much as I believe in preaching and experiencing God during this moment, that will not sustain you. So I'm excited to bring the word, but I just had to get that out there before I tell you the title of this sermon. The title of this sermon is called Pursuing Jesus. And we're going to look at a double miracle in the scriptures where Jesus heals a woman with an issue of bleeding on his way to raise a little girl from the dead. Did you bring your Bible this early in church? Did you bring your Bible at our other locations? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Oh, come on. That's what I'm talking about, 8 a.m. That's phenomenal. Other locations, hold it up high. Somebody say, I love my Bible. Look at the person next to you say, my Bible's better than your Bible. (laughs) Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Oh, it's so good. I absolutely love getting to preach God's word. What an honor. All right, remember Luke 8? We did a couple of sermons on this. The parable of the sower that Jesus teaches. He leaves his hometown to go and heal uh, someone in a region where most Jews would avoid. And we're actually going to talk about what happens when he returns back to his hometown. A miracle that happens in the context of being on his way to another miracle. This is so cool. Luke chapter 8. Verse 40, and we're going to read all the way to verse 56. If you're there, say I'm there. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child Get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stopped. She stood up. 
Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Wow. Double miracle. This is one of my absolute favorite stories from the life of Jesus. Because not only do we see an example of his miraculous power, but we see such a picture of his personality in two stories that so closely overlap and mirror one another. It's almost like it's not an accident that they're happening at the same time. Only God can write something with this much overlap between two totally disconnected stories that both need a miracle. I want to tell you a couple of specifics behind that. Number one, did you notice how old the little girl who is sick and eventually passes away for a moment is? She's 12. And did you notice how long the woman with the issue of bleeding has struggled with her issue? 12 years. It's almost like as soon as this little girl was born, this woman's issue began. And then, when the woman with the issue of bleeding reaches Jesus and gets her physical healing, it's the exact same moment that the little girl dies. Did you notice that when Jesus was proclaiming, daughter, your faith has made you well, it's the exact moment. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, the servant came to Jairus and said, your daughter is dead. These two issues just going back and forth, coexisting side by side. And it's almost like the word daughter is spoken simultaneously. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, Jairus' servant said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus, and this is, I'll just go ahead and give you this. This is the only time in the Bible that Jesus uses the word daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well to the woman who has exposed her issue publicly, happens at the exact same time that Jairus' daughter passes away. Now, there are so many sermons that could be preached about this passage that I've heard preached about this passage. One of them is about the power of paying attention to your interruptions, that Jesus is on his way to heal a little girl. He does not have time, or so we think, to stop and notice the needs of another Yet while the demands on his time are so urgent, Jesus never misses an opportunity to notice an individual. We say on our staff team, sometimes the interruption is actually the assignment. So don't despise the interruption. And I think that's a good message. I think that's a powerful message. Another message in this one is about Jesus' power over death. Did you notice that when the Jairus is told that his daughter has passed away, they're tempted to give up on Jesus' ability to heal. It's not the only time that that happens, by the way. When Lazarus died, they thought, oh, you could have healed him if you were here sooner. But for some reason, it's believed that Jesus is a miraculous healer, but the power to raise the dead is something that is too difficult for him. And so Jesus is showing off, now I'm not just a healer of physical issues. I have the power of resurrection when I show up, so much so that he shows up and puts out the mourners. 2,000 years ago in the ancient Jewish world, families would hire mourners who would literally stay outside of their home and, and cry out to God on their behalf. But you can tell how fake this grief is because when Jesus shows up, he says, she's not dead, she's asleep. And the same people who were crying and mourning for this little girl are now laughing at Jesus. How do you go from crying and mourning to laughing? Here's the answer. You were never really crying and mourning. 
You were hired to do that. And so they're laughing at Jesus. Jesus goes, you're not, you're not, nobody's getting a view of what I'm about to do. But I'm about to display that my power is not just to heal the sick. My power is to raise the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. That's a powerful sermon too. Look up here. Do not miss this. The real sermon is in what is our responsibility to hear this story and know how we apply it to our lives personally. And I believe the message for us has everything to do with how synced up Jairus' pursuit of Jesus is and the woman's pursuit of Jesus is. How do they pursue him? They both do the same thing. They fall at his feet in a very bold and embarrassing way. The commonality between these two stories is the willingness to display bold faith and fall at the feet of Jesus. Both Jairus and the woman have the same choice, and it's a choice that you and I have today. It's this. Spiritual power is available to you, but you have to decide if you're going to do something about it or leave things the same way by staying in the same place. If they do nothing, things stay the same. Jairus does nothing, his daughter dies. This woman does nothing, she keeps bleeding. In fact, we know from the footnote of this story that she actually spent all of her money on physical, medical remedies to heal her, and she's run out. But the commonality between the two is a bold, embarrassing step of faith. And look up here, ACC, do not miss this. I believe there is spiritual power available to us all at all times because of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference between those who gain access to it and those whose lives stay the same is this, a bold, somewhat embarrassing step of faith, a willingness to fall at the feet of Jesus and proclaim your need. And I believe this is the type of faith that God moves in power on the backside of. You can write this down. Spiritual power is released on the other side of express faith. Spiritual power is released on the other side of expressed faith. See, faith is not just believed truths about who God is. Faith is as simple as being willing to worship God in a way that requires an act of the will. See, we think of faith as, okay, as long as I believe the right truths about God, I'm in line with his will and I have access to his power. But in our daily lives, the reality is you can believe all that you need to believe about God, but with no real expression of faith, the power of God that fills you from the inside out will be at best limited and at most blocked completely. Express faith. Well, I express faith when I prayed the prayer when I was little. I express faith in, in a way that's different from all the other emotional people. No, no, no. Spiritual power is released on the other side of express faith. And the bad news about this is that you must do this if you want what Jesus is willing to give you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your leaders can't do it for you. No one else can provide the level of spiritual inertia that causes a moment like this for these individuals. But I believe for us, the power of God to fill and move in and through our lives begins with a willingness to actually express our faith and declare our level of desperation before God. Here's all we're going to do today. We're going to look in depth at both of these bold steps. And we're going to look really deeply at Jairus. We're going to look really deeply at the woman with the issue. And we're going to ask the question, what was it about their bold step that needs to become my bold step? And not just in a moment when I have a severe need, but in a daily practice of declaring my need for God that never expires. 
Y'all down to do that? Back to back. Here we go. Back to back. It's the double miracle. Back to back. Number one, let's look at Jairus. Look at this. Verse 40. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. Pay attention to that. I always tell you, pay attention when Jesus has a crowd around him because he tends to do stuff that break up the popularity he has for a certain reason. They were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Jairus is what is called a synagogue leader. I got to tell you what this means. Because the synagogue was the place where Jews would gather on the Sabbath to hear the word of God preached and taught. But when you hear that, you're like, oh, so it's like a church. Yes and no. It's like a church mixed with a public park, mixed with a country club, mixed with every expression of social life in the Jewish world revolves around the synagogue. You're there every day. This is where business deals get done. This is where kids run around and annoy their parents. This is where life happens in the synagogue. And Jairus is a prominent leader in the synagogue. Meaning what? Meaning among the Jewish contingent in Jesus' hometown, Jairus is influential. He's powerful. And among the Jewish leadership during Jesus' day, there was not a consensus about whether or not Jesus was sent from God or sent as a heretic. And so Jairus has this choice, and it's the choice to fall at the feet of Jesus, even though most of the men around him are going to disown and or dishonor him for it. See, the Jewish leadership was curious about Jesus. They were asking questions. That's why you always find these contexts where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going back and forth with Jesus because they're going, we know you have miraculous power to do these good deeds, but we don't know where you came from, and we don't know how to make sense out of this. For the most part, the Jewish leadership had a posture toward Jesus, and it's this. Arms crossed. We'll wait and see on you. We know you're doing good things, but you're also saying things that are super confusing. And some of them more curious than others, guys like Nicodemus who have conversations with Jesus in John chapter 3, and some of them more opposed to Jesus than others, like Caiaphas, the high priest himself. But for the most part, the Jewish leadership is watching, going, what is he doing? And Jairus, influential leader in the synagogue, decides to look around at his social capital, at his influence, at his reputation, and go, I don't care. My daughter's about to die. I just don't care. If she's going to live, it's going to be because of him. So when it says he came and fell at the feet of Jesus... You and I need to see this is him giving up his life as he knew it before. The guys who he needs respect from, who he needs consensus from, are going to go, you got to be kidding me. We're falling at the feet of a renegade Jewish rabbi over here who we don't even know what he's teaching or all that he's about. It's because there's a situation with enough desperation to stop playing games with God. He's desperate enough to go, okay, I can sit here and philosophically debate whether or not you're actually telling me the truth for the rest of my life. But here's what's real. My daughter's about to die. This guy's got power. I'm surrendered. And the question I have for Auburn Community Church today is, what's it going to take for you to uncross your arms somewhat physically and respond with bold faith to God? 
For a lot of you, it will take a situation that knocks you to your knees this bad. But my question today is why should it? If our situation is as desperate as we know it to be based on the scriptures, our default should be to the type of position that Jairus takes. And I, wanna, I just want to wake some of us up today to go, you don't realize what's at stake with whether or not you express your desperation for God. What would it take for you to uncross your arms and get out of just being a spectator? There's a large group in the life of our church, and I'm not talking about the way you act physically during songs. I'm talking about your daily life. I'm talking about your thoughts. I'm talking about the way you spend your money. I'm talking about the way you watch TV. I'm talking about the way you consume content. I'm talking about the way you relate to your kids, the way you relate to your friends, the way you spend your time. I'm talking about your life. There's a large group at ACC who, if we read your life, you are a spectator spiritually. You love what Jesus is teaching, and part of you loves what God's doing. But you have not thrown away your reputation enough to boldly come before Jesus and go, this is it. You can have all of me. I'm here. Point number one from what we see in Jairus that we got to learn to apply to our lives is this. Boldly come before Jesus. Boldly come before Jesus. The gospel message of Jesus is come follow me before it is go make disciples. The reason why the disciples could go on mission is because they had made a decision to spend their lives pursuing Jesus. And the backward part of so much of what we're doing in the church world is we're sending people on mission to go serve the poor and serve the needy and maybe even on mission trips and maybe all over the world before they've actually cultivated a heart that's fully submitted and surrendered to Jesus. And it just leads to you burning out in your faith. You have to learn how to Come before you go. And what's happening here is Jairus is making that decision for himself. But I want to ask this question, and it's a question. I, guys, I know this is a convicting sermon, and I know this one's hard. It's, it, this is the easy part. Because the woman with the issue of bleeding, it, it, that's only going to make it harder. Trust me. So stay with me here. You'll like this one better than point number two. But I want to ask this question. I'm going to ask you in a personal way. What if Jairus would have just stayed where he was? Like, what if he's there, he knows Jesus has miraculous power, and he looks around, and he sees what's going to happen if he falls at Jesus' feet, and he goes, I like my spot at the synagogue, and I like being seen as influential and powerful. Maybe she'll get better. If Jairus doesn't boldly fall before Jesus, his only daughter dies. I wonder in this room what you would do if you could see what's at stake with your next decision in whether or not you come boldly before Jesus. This is not just about physical expression of devotion to God. This is about what's at stake with whether or not you keep your arms crossed as a spectator to the things of God or if you fall at his feet and go all in. And I'm telling you, if you could see today what's at stake in one or the other, you would stop looking so half-hearted when we sing the songs that we do. You would stop putting God in the background of your life because in a fresh way you would know, well, if that's what's at stake, then I don't care. 
If my daughter's life's at stake, listen, I love you guys and I want to be influential here, but even if y'all kick me out, I want her alive. See, we need to talk to people about what the cost is of turning down Jesus's invitation. We need to consider in our minds, okay, maybe I'll keep this if I, if I just stay in the background of what God's doing. But hold on, what do you lose in the moment you don't fall before Jesus? The answer is you won't even know unless you do fall before him. And so I just want to talk some of you out of the mindset that says, I get to hold on to more of my life if I stay in my own lane. No, giving up all to fall at the feet of Jesus is gaining what you were truly created for in the first place. And I'm, I'm getting to the point, not all the way there, probably never will be all the way there, but I'm getting to the point, 34 years old, where I just don't care. And I don't know where it's coming from, if it's just that I've spent time with the Lord or if I've just been reading the right things, but I'm like, I really do not care in my life what faithfulness to the word of God and an undignified style of worship for God cost me in the eyes of the world. I just don't care. Why? Because I want him bad enough. I, it all could fade away. But he's the one I'm pursuing, and he's the one I want. And I wonder what it would take to get more people to the place where you just don't care anymore. Where you're not debating in your mind, well, what in the world is my family going to think if I actually lifted my hand in worship? Do you know how trivial that is compared to what God's going to call you to do after you lift your hand in worship? That is a small step of obedience in a grand scale of surrender. You think that's a big deal. Wait till he tells you to give half of your wealth. He might. I'm not him. He tells me what to do individually, and he literally might do that. But when you see what's true about him, you do stuff that doesn't make sense to the row. You do stuff that doesn't make sense to the masses, and you go, you know what? I just don't care anymore. I want to boldly come before Jesus. And this looks differently than a Sunday worship experience every single day, but there is power in living your life in bold worship and submission to God. And where we have failed you as a church too many times is I've made a powerful point like that that hurts, is super convicting, but I don't really give you a roadmap for, hey, here's how you do that. Here's what that looks like tomorrow morning. Here's what that looks like tomorrow at 1.07 p.m. Somebody's going to listen to this at that time and go, whoa, God's speaking. I don't know. I looked at the clock. It's 8.54. Uh, I was like, whoa, what? I don't even know what time it is right now. I'm so in the zone of this sermon. I want you to know how. But with this one, this is one of those that, we can give you training, training wheels and like walk you on the bike and hold you and make sure you know that you're good. But this one's just not going to happen until you start to pedal and do it yourself. Like you, you can read all the books you want about how to pursue God, prayer, personal worship. But until you go, okay, I'm putting the phone down. I'm putting my devices away. I'm setting my mind on God. And I, even if it's just for five minutes. I'm not setting a clock. I'm not setting an agenda. I am just going to say what comes to my mind when I think about being at the feet of Jesus. God, here's where I've been. Here's, where I've, here's what I've done. Here's what I want to see you do in and through my life. Here's where I feel like you're distant. God, you're worthy. God, you're so much more than my words have. See, and it will not have power unless you do it. 
even as you just heard me do it, you're like, oh, it sounds good. That resonated with me. It will not have power unless you take the step and do it. Why? Because spiritual power is on the other side of express faith. I should have wrote it this way. Your express faith. Not theirs, not mine, yours. And so to boldly come before Jesus is to learn to live a lifestyle where pursuing him is the aim of your day and where you physically, with your body, take steps to boldly come before him. Now that's just number one. That's Jairus. But you saw that in the middle of healing and resurrecting a 12-year-old girl, Jesus decides to flip this whole awesome story on its head by being willing to get interrupted. A woman touches him in a crowd of probably thousands of people, hundreds pressing against him at least, and he gets touched. And you heard Peter go, why are you worried about who touched you? Like, there, there's so many people around you. Like, we need to go heal Jairus' daughter. Why, why are you making a big deal about this? But Jesus makes such a big deal out of it that literally he's not going to move on to Jairus' house unless the person who touched him seeking a healing will be willing to come forward. Now, there's debate about this. People, people say, Jesus knows who it is. He just needs her to say it out loud. I actually think it could go either way. I think Jesus worked in real time with human limitations to his divinity. Fully God, fully man, but like experienced life in every way as we are, yet without sin. So maybe Jesus had a word from the Holy Spirit that told him, it's that woman over there, wait until she confesses. Or maybe Jesus genuinely is like, I know, something just happened. And I didn't know who it happened to. And we'll see his purpose behind it in verse 47. Look at verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, I love the ESV translation of that. It's seeing that she could not remain hidden, came trembling and fell at his feet. Same response as Jairus. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So I want you to notice this. The act of bold faith that gets her in the same position as Jairus is not the act of healing her from her physical issue. It's the act of falling before Jesus in a public way, risking the scorn of the people around her. Now, got to ask the question, why does this woman not want to admit what just happened? Other than the fact that it's a very embarrassing and shameful issue to have. The reason why she doesn't want this to be exposed publicly, there's multiple different explanations offered, but it all has to do with the word synagogue. See, Jairus was a leader in the synagogue, and I told you that was the center of social life. But here's the thing. If you had an issue of bleeding like this woman, you're considered unclean, so you can't go to the synagogue. And that begs the question, okay, well, why doesn't, why doesn't she want to expose this publicly? Because, number one, there's scholars who believe that this woman had this issue of bleeding. Remember, she spent all her money on doctors, and maybe she got, like, a temporary solution, but then the bleeding came back. And maybe she hid the fact that the bleeding came back and went back to the synagogue and was like, I'm not living my life isolated from my people again. I thought I had a healing. And maybe they knew that she bled before, but that she's not, maybe she's not bleeding right now, even though that's what she's going through. Some of you, that's your greatest spiritual issue, is you're still struggling with something that people think you got over a while ago. 
and it's staying hidden and in the dark is what is paralyzing your soul right now, that, that, that's possible. The bigger explanation and the one that I think is more accurate, I think that first one's interesting to consider and the meaning is just as real. But the bigger explanation is that she knows whoever she touches becomes unclean. So by touching Jesus, Jesus is now unwelcome in the synagogue. And she thinks that her issue got on Jesus. But Jesus is calling her in this moment to discover, and this is why he does this, that her messy situation does not mess him up at all. It does not taint him. It does not make him unclean. His cleanness is what transfers to her. And he knows this issue for her has gone so much deeper than a physical issue of healing. It has become a spiritual issue about identity. Because now this woman believes I'm unclean. I'm dirty. I'm shameful. And wouldn't you know it, in the most epic way, the only time Jesus calls someone daughter happens right there. I'm not calling you to confess this publicly because I want to embarrass you. I'm calling you to confess this publicly because I need you to know who you really are. You're not dirty. You're not shameful. You're not separate. You're not isolated. You're not damaged goods. You're mine. And you're in my family. Daughter, your faith has healed you. See, the first act of faith, just the touch, fixed the physical. But the second act of faith, the falling at his feet, healed the spiritual. But it didn't happen until this. And this is number two. Number one was boldly come before Jesus. Number two, boldly confess your secrets. Boldly confess your secrets. Now, a little disclaimer here. Anytime we talk about confession, I am not talking about every single person knowing the deepest, darkest secret of your soul. And that's just walking around bearing all for everyone around us. That's, that's unhealthy and that's not reasonable. But I am talking about a public dynamic to how you confess the secrets that are holding you captive. This woman was still going to be captive to the lies in her mind, even though the healing physically would have welcomed her back into the synagogue. She was still going to believe, I'm dirty, I'm separate, I'm isolated. And Jesus goes, I need you to say that out loud in front of them so that you and they can know who you really are. James says that we confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. I think part of that comes from this story. Because healing in your life will be limited if all your confession is, is to God. James said, confess your sins to who? To one another that you may be healed. See, when we think about confession, we either think Catholicism, like in a dark space, telling a priest, hey, here's what I did this week, and can you speak something over me to make me feel better? But in turning away from that messed up practice that the Catholic Church put in place, the Protestant Church, which is what we are, for the most part, has ignored confession as a spiritual discipline. So here's what we do. We do communion at the end of our gathering, and most of you, including me, whisper whatever sin is the most prominent in your mind and heart to God. You go, God, yeah, you, thank you, Jesus, for your body and your blood. I confess, I did this. Thank you, Jesus. And listen, I, I do think you should confess your sins to God. But it will be limited, very, very, very fractured in power compared 
to confessing your sins to another human being who loves you and who you trust. And this woman is released, not just physically, but spiritually to live in her true identity because now it's in the light. As long as it's in the dark, it's got you. And I've, I've gotten in front of our people so many times and told you there is something about coming out of hiding. There is something about bringing to the surface in a trusted relationship within a faith family. Hey, here's the secret. Here's the thing I'm keeping hidden. And here's the thing I don't want anyone to know. And there is real healing on the backside of a real relational confession. I was at a conference with some of our team this week and one of the pastors who got up to speak. He's worked with Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time, which is an organization I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I have multiple family members with addiction issues. And my, my brother, who was at the game yesterday, told me, he's like, you know what September 29th is, right? I was like, ah, uh, our family's having so many kids. I'm like, is that your kid's birthday? <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't even know. Any aunts and uncles have that problem of like, I can't keep track of all these birthdays. I know the grandparents in the room do. And he was like, no, um, this September 29th is 10 years sober for me. And I was like, good night, God is so good. But a, a lot of his sobriety goes back to like fully pouring into Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you find out how they do what they do, a lot of it centers around biblical truths. One of them is the practice of public confession. If you haven't been to an AA meeting, to speak, you say, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And I used to think that, that that's kind of messed up to associate your identity with an issue. Like, they don't need to do that. And, and some of that I agree with. But you know why they do that? They do that so the first thing you say is owning your stuff. And so the pastor who was speaking at this conference this week, he said, I've been in so many AA meetings. He's like, I've seen more miracles in the basement of churches than the main sanctuary proclaims from the stage and claims to know about. Like, 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 like what's happening on the fringe is really where the power is. And so he asked the question, why can't the church be more like AA? And his answer was, because Christians won't act more like alcoholics. And he said, see, they know. If they have another drink, the road will lead to death. And so they know if I don't own this publicly out loud, if I'm not at this meeting saying this out loud, I'll go back to my issue and it'll destroy me. See, those of us in the room who don't have a struggle like that, we fall into the paralyzation of a lie which says, it's not that bad. Be, you, you don't need to share that because, because it'll do more damage. This is the enemy talking. It'll do more damage if you share it than if you're honest about it to people. That, and they will understand, like they're gonna look at you. You just keep it quiet. And, then, and then you know this, the more you keep it quiet, the more you keep it in the dark, what does it do? It does not get smaller. Your issue gets bigger and overtakes your mind. And, and y'all, I promise, I am not just talking about drinking too much or looking at porn or cheating on your spouse or, or, or doing all these big things that we think about, whoa, if I could confess this. I'm thinking about making it a discipline in your life to wear your stuff to people you trust. The vast majority of you don't have a discipline of confessing your sins to another believer. And it shows in how much your identity is fractured in the presence of God because it's one thing for God to tell you you're my child through his word. 
But it's another thing for a Christian to look you in the eyes and go, I see you. You're not dirty. You're not crazy. You're not lost. You're not separate. You belong to God. And I'm telling you, that's actually the way God wants to say it to you through another human being in the context of the family of the local church. I I don't know who that is for you. And once again, I don't want to preach something so intense without giving you the training wheels to go, where do I start with that, Miles? It starts with someone you trust. And maybe more than anything, it starts in prayer going, God, who is that? And what does that look like for me? So we're going to take communion. You can get your communion elements out right now. We're going to remember that Jesus' body and Jesus' blood is the only way we have this access to God. And yes, you can confess your sins. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. Our team will come uh, bring one to you. Yes, you can confess your sins, but more than anything, I want you focusing on this truth. We'll put it on the screen. Spiritual power is released on the other side of express faith. Whatever you do during communion or during this song of worship that we're gonna sing before we go, just take the time to actually express your faith in Jesus. Once again, raise your hand if you didn't get one because I know some of y'all raise it and put it down. Actually take the time to figure out what does it mean for me to express who God is to me. Husbands, pray over your wives. Let's enjoy this time in the presence of God. Band, choir, we're gonna come up here and sing one more song. But let's go there as we take communion.